This is my Dialorama podcast, our top picks for this fortnight. I'm Abla, I'm a film programmer and journalist. For this episode, we're going to have a, another guest, Matt, and I'll let Matt introduce himself. And we have my co-host, Coco Green, who's back. Hello. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I felt bad. I didn't let you introduce yourself last week till about half an hour in or something. So <laughs> No, no, it's so, fine. Uh, I'll let Matt introduce himself. Hi, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm a production coordinator in the film visual effects industry and uh, an aspiring film critic slash programmer. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Very quickly this week, we're going to go through our top picks and then we're going to be talking about the film Waves. And this is Matt's top pick. It's going to be pretty quick because I'm the only one with top picks and maybe Matt would like to recommend something. Yeah, I've got a couple. I wanted to talk about a series I've been watching, a really, really, really fantastic film that I want to recommend, and a couple of festivals. So briefly, the series I've been watching that I'd like to recommend is Unwell, and it's a series that you can find on Netflix. It's about the dark side of the wellness industry, and each episode devotes some time to uh, a specific side of this industry or a specific selling point. So one of them's about essential oils, one of them's about um, the use of breast milk for muscle enhancement. I've not seen that one yet. So each episode focuses on a specific aspect of the wellness industry and a specific product that this industry tries to sell you. So the first episode uh, specifically focuses on the use of essential oils and especially two companies, Zutera and Young Living. And now why I'd like to bring this up specifically is because a running theme, Matt, has been throughout our series and unwittingly has been um, MLMs, multi-level marketing schemes. So in this first episode, we see how women get involved in these MLM schemes to sell essential oils to other mostly gullible women. And they sell them the idea that these essential oils can cure just about anything. So there's a... There's the mother of an autistic child in the episode and she's been told that these essential oils can help her child. Now, to be fair to her, she has seen some improvements. So I don't know if it's a placebo or if what she's bought actually works, but they do invite a scientist on that gives quite um, an effective critique of the use of these natural remedies. And what's interesting about this entire series is how you see capitalism co-opt these age-old natural remedies and bodily fluids, really, to just create these pyramid schemes and make people spend more money. And another thing that I found connected all the episodes were the users. So the people that were the most gullible would, would have very strong religious beliefs. So they would really link that belief in the efficiency of that product with their belief in God. There's another episode on fasting and the trends peddled by the Silicon Valley types who want to hack the human body just like any other computer. That's really infuriating to watch. Oh, I don't know. I might be interested in that because I'm really interested in fasting. <laughs> and, and because of the religious component, right? Like, I think it's... Um... Well, it, I'd be interested to know what science they cite, right? Because there's different kinds of fasting. And I've seen the more extreme things where they do the dry fasting versus the fasting where it's just liquid only for as long as you can handle it versus the intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. So 
I'd like to know, yeah, what it is, you know, and, and the purpose behind it, because it is different for people who are obese versus people who have diabetes versus people who are just trying to shed 10 pounds. It would all have a different sort of context and meaning behind it. Yeah. What you remember from the, well, at first I was like, you know what, they've got, they've got a point. But I think the most irritating factor of this episode and what I remember from it, it wasn't even what they used, what signs they based their fasting on or what beliefs they had. It was the fact that it was peddled in the same way that every, it was, that's it. It was marketed as a disruptive thing, like everything else that Silicon Valley puts forward, like Uber, like uh, Airbnb or whatever. All these companies to are disrupting existing models because they think they can do bigger and better. And usually what it ends up is uh, a subpar, subpar quality and lots of people suffering. And they do this on every level of society. So for them, the human body, nature isn't good enough. Let's hack it. Let's find some ways of conning it and make ourselves more efficient. Because it's not about losing weight. That's what I really resented about this. It's very much about being extremely focused and performing. So it's, again, all about being productive, making more money. They all look like sociopaths, and I don't think there's anything to gain from living miserably like that. And also, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to make yourself refuse food. It was very hands-off. It was really trying to be as objective as possible and I think they achieved that quite well yeah I was gonna I was gonna ask like how they did it are they is it like um undercover filming of this sort of thing or no no it's very out in the open so they interview um proponents of these products as well as critics scientists as well as nut jobs as well as uh, new age uh, theorists as well as users it's hard to find the editorial line in it and I thought that was quite useful on the whole, I thought it was quite balanced. I'd want to really strongly recommend a coup de coeur this week, which was the Japanese zombie comedy, One Cut of the Dead. I don't know if either of you have heard of it. It's by, and I'm going to butcher his name, Shinichiro Ueda. And it was made with a very low budget of $25,000. And it grossed about $30 million. Now, I, I really don't want to say a lot about this film because I'm going to assume that whoever's listening has not watched it and I really want to encourage them to watch it. And what I'll say is, stick with it. It's a low-budget zombie film and it starts off with a director and some actors shooting a film in an abandoned water filtration plant. They're, they're shooting a film about zombies and then real zombies appear and they start to get attacked. Now, it's really clever, it's brilliant, it's rip-roaringly funny in parts. I loved about it, and you'll see what I mean when you've watched it, but I love the fact that it was a real celebration of the ingenuity of uh, low-budget filmmaking. And it reminded me in that specific way of Be Kind Rewind, the uh, Michelle Gondry film, because it was very much about the clever tricks and camaraderie that's involved in uh, in low-budget filmmaking when young directors are starting out so I, I really recommend that if you can find it now a few festivals quickly I would like to flag the first indigenous film festival in Canada by Vision Maker Media for the first time Vision Maker Media will be hosting an online five-week long festival of American Indian Alaska Native and worldwide indigenous films and that's from it's already started so 31st of August through to uh, 5th of October and they'll be hosting talks by filmmakers, they'll be hosting discussions. And it's a really quite a rich programme. 
they've got focuses like uh, activism, an activism program, a youth one, an LGBT one. The other one that's coming up is one of my favourite festivals. It's a short film festival and it's Encounters in Bristol. So this year it's all of it's going to be online and I can't recommend it enough because it's only £10 to get a festival pass. And £10 will give you 250 short films and I guarantee that the vast majority will be excellent. The, the programmers do a fantastic job every year. It's such a joy to attend. So I really recommend going online on the Encounters website and getting a pass. So they've got special guests this year as well. They've got uh, involvement from the Accra Animation Film Festival, the Bristol, Palestinian, the Bristol Palestinian Film Festival, Queer Vision, Oscar Bright, and many more. A few films actually um, that I just want to recommend that will be featured in Encounters. So first one is Mehdi Flayfil's Three Logical Exits. So Mehdi Flayfil, we talked about his film as part of our intro, I think, in like the second podcast we did, A Land Not not ours. He's a really good filmmaker, but he's only made shorts. That was his first, his first and only feature to date. And there'll be uh, Anthony Enti's film, Dayu, which uh, was at the Clermont-Ferrand Film Festival and won the um, grand prize there. It's a really good short. If you can catch it, Murad Mustafa's Hennad Ward. It's an Egyptian film. And finally, Duncan Cowles, who's got a film there as well. And we'd reviewed his uh, short, The Lady with the Lamb, back in 2015, and that's available on YouTube. So these are the films that I'd quickly flag in Encounters. And that's it for me. Matt, if you'd like to recommend anything, now's your time. Uh, so I've been watching a documentary series called Women Make Film. Uh, it's available on BFI Player. I'm not sure where it's available outside of, uh, outside of that, but it's probably, I think it might be on Amazon Prime as well. Um, but it's essentially, it's like a 14 hour documentary series. I've only watched the first episode so far, but, um, what I really like about it is I thought it was going to be a documentary about someone just, you know, being like, these are all these women filmmakers we've forgotten and, and kind of like presenting it like a rewriting of film history, like kind of like a lecture, which don't get me wrong. I think that'd be like a great documentary, but, but what I really loved about this is that it really, um, exposes you to the films themselves. It shows clips from over a hundred films from all over the world directed by women. And it basically just guides you through how cinematic they are. Uh, it has various different chapters. So like it breaks it down into film openings. There's a chapter on tone. There's a, tap a chapter on like introduction to character. And then it just, it kind of just lets the films do the talking for themselves, which I really liked. Um, it kind of just, it really makes you just want to go and find the films yourself and watch them. I've also been watching loads of Asian cinema. So I'd give a shout out to the Japanese cinema season on BFI player. They've got like a mix of old classics, uh, contemporary cult films, and uh, they've also started putting some anime up. So that's well worth a uh, check out as well. Brilliant. We'll, we'll then swiftly move on to discussing Waves now. Obviously the question, the first question is going to be to you, Matt. Why did you pick Waves? And would you like to tell us a bit more about um, that and about the film? Um, yeah, well, so to give it some background, um, usually like when I go to the cinema, I feel like I do tons of research. Like I watch the trailers, I read tons of reviews and all that kind of thing. But what happened was basically I saw the poster for this film last year. I can't remember where I saw it, but I just saw it advertised somewhere. And I had an afternoon free and I was just like, I'm just going to go cinema and watch this. I have no idea what it's about. I really thought the film was a ride. Like, I was really shocked how invested I became in the film. 
And I felt like it'd been a long time since I'd seen a film that was as cinematic as it was, like where I felt like everything on a theme character level is like pushed way through by the aesthetics. Like the camera work is just crazy. There's like lots of like neon noir lighting. I think the soundtrack's amazing. It really kind of gets right under the character's skin. And there's also like a big shift in the narrative, which I don't know how you both feel about it, but I didn't really want to spoil it here as well. Because um, I think for the sake of this podcast, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have to assume that people have seen it because um, otherwise it's going to limit the, stuff, the kind of stuff we can talk about. So, yeah, go for it. I think that the, the shift in the, in, the, in the middle really works for me and it kind of gives the film room to breathe because the first half is very intense. But, yeah, to basically give a brief synopsis of people who haven't seen it, it essentially focuses on the life of an uh, Ameri- African-American family. Uh, the son is an outgoing athlete who like pushes himself through a painful sports injury that he really shouldn't. And that's kind of fueled by, by himself, by his body image, by his dad's passion. And you've also got the daughter in the family who's a lot more introverted and reserved. And it's basically about them finding and losing love and the family unit trying to navigate through a particular crisis. But yeah, that's kind of a background. I'd love to know what you guys thought. I watched it yesterday. I'm actually going to agree with you because I think I lost a lot from the fact that it was uh, I viewed it on a, on a small screen. So I didn't view it with the most receptive audience. I should point that out. I was with my husband and my parents and my parents didn't have, especially my mum, I guess, didn't have a lot of patience for things that don't grab you within the first five minutes. So... Five minutes in, we hear a ting, which turns out is her playing Rosal on her phone and forgot to switch the sound off. Um, So already that was the first hurdle. So we had a debate over whether or not to carry on watching the film. So she just, she she left us to it. And then uh, my dad said there was a Frankie Boyle special if we were interested. (laughs) I spent the next sort of five to ten minutes thinking, I wish I was watching the Frankie Boyle special. But it takes a while to get going. And I think I think I lost a lot by the fact that it was on a small screen. And I think the length of it is very well justified when you watch it at the cinema because of the sensory experience of the colours, of the mm-hmm. rhythm, of the music and so on. I actually really like the music. And just on a purely sensory level, I was very slightly reminded of Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void, which is quite a controversial film and didn't get, I think, it got mixed reviews, but I really, really enjoyed watching it at the cinema. And I don't think it would be half as enjoyable if you watched it anywhere else. So I think you make a good point. I do have to say that I watched his previous films, um, the director's previous films, especially the most recent one, which is It Comes at Night, and I really liked that. It was very atmospheric, it was very creepy. And I found some of his cinematography there was quite similar to It Comes at Night, which I really liked. I just wish it was a bit, it packed a tighter punch, I guess. It, it felt quite drawn out. Um, yeah. and, I, and because of that, I couldn't quite get invested into the characters' stories. So I didn't really feel emotionally connected to the characters. I think that was what, what was lacking for me. So yeah, that's what I'll think I'll say about it. What do you think? I really liked the way it looked, right? So we always have to start with the positive. Compliment sandwich. So uh, (laughs) maybe not a sandwich, but we'll start with the positives. Because you know what? The problem is if you start with the negatives, then people don't hear, not you, of course, or you, but 
it makes it more difficult to hear the positives when you can only think about the negatives. So that's why I think you should start with the positives. Something I've, I've thought about for a long time. Anyway, I didn't like how it shot. I really liked the soundtrack because the way it was shot, you, it gave the feeling, at least for me, that I was in the car or walking into the party or walking into the house or in the gym with them working out. Like it made you feel like you were in the mix of things. And being so much older <laughs> than the protagonist, I thought that was a good feeling to try to give people a sense from everything from their point of view. So nothing was like up high. Everything was kind of like at level involved in the midst of it. So, um, I mean, I, I just wasn't a huge fan of it. I thought it was okay. And I think it's because the themes were so heavy and time timely, right? Because it's really talking about fatherhood black manhood social death i mean he's incarcerated at the end right and pretty much his life is over because he will be up for parole after 30 years but no one's saying he's gonna get it right and so i just i don't think that there was a strong enough like you can't talk about in my opinion black manhood and then not have something strong to say about race and i don't think that the film did it to me it just relied on these kind of tropes about black violence i just i didn't i didn't get it and especially like i did think was interesting the way it was split up right so the first half was really focused on the brother and then the second half was pretty much the sister's story her dealing with the aftermath of that but again nothing really about race like she just kind of shared in the anger of everyone towards her brother so it's like well what good are you if you're just going to have that kind of view and it's like she she had sympathy it seemed for the white abusive father of her boyfriend and she couldn't extend that to her own brother and it I mean I just think if you're going to say if if he was going to tell that story then I don't know why he needed to do that with the black family you could have told that story with the white family yeah for those who don't know uh, because Matt you didn't when you watched the film the director's white and he from what I've read in interviews with him it's a personal film so he wanted to talk about the relationship between him and his dad, which from what I read was more exemplified by the um, Kyle character. Is he called Kyle? No, sorry. The boyfriend. By Luke's character. So Lucas Hedges' character, sorry. And in one of the interviews, the journalist asked, well, why did you choose a black family in particular? Or did you feel that it was appropriate? And then he said he worked a lot with the main actor who he's friends with to make it as realistic as possible, I guess, to make it as authentic as possible. Now, I'm, yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about it. I, they're quite universal themes, what he talks about, and it definitely was, he, could, he, he just picked another family, a random family, to express the relationship, the difficult, complex relationship he's got with his dad, which is fine, but that, that might explain why he's not really delved into the racial element but that would be a problem it's not like saying oh well my family this story happened to me in cleveland but i'm gonna base this family in miami no like you're talking about race that but that is a social division it fundamentally changes like you it's not even as if it's like manhood and you can tell that story through a black or white person no manhood fundamentally changes once you start talking about black people and i also think that's a problem to then say well a black person co-signed it because they can speak to a black experience they can speak to their black experience 
but they can't speak to a black experience unless that's something that you study. And then it's then your specific story and there's nothing wrong with that, but then that should be your specific story. You can't then say, I mean, it's something I think about quite a bit because a problem that I see within really the media in the U S right. is like black people feel the blacks people who say that they speak for black people tend to lead very, particular specific lives based on one of the coasts right so kind of from new york or from the west coast california but that's not even where most black people live so then it begs the question well what makes your experience common enough to Mm -hmm. say that it can be representative of something like that and it can't really but people think it is and they think it is because well if i'm a black person all my experiences can be representative but they can't really because if if you want to talk about something kind of common or general in that case you should probably be in the south somewhere and in a working class family but of course these spokespeople tend to be from affluent families especially this character i mean can we talk about that did you see that house I, what I did, about yeah. that was a typical black family <laughs> I know. Nothing. And again, nothing wrong with that. But then don't say that that's a typical story. Say that that is uh, from a very affluent family. And even because, look, th- that's just it too, right? The Something that came across to me, and I, I don't know if it was a, I'd say it was a theme, but this intense loneliness, all of these characters, they're in a family, but everyone is so lonely. Yeah. And that's fine. However, then, again, what about this family is black because they're not rooted in any sort of institution, right? Like they're not rooted in a black church. Mm. Uh, The father doesn't is not rooted in black business per se, even though his very business is about building institutions. He takes a lot of pride in that, right? That he's building community, he builds homes. So, but yet that isn't really a black enterprise. It's just a father that has his own business and kind of, very much separated in and insulated from that like even the character he's not really with black friends right he has a white girlfriend he's got white friends so again like why not just use a white family to tell this story that wasn't i don't i don't understand because you're not saying if you're not going to say something specific about black masculinity and really the only thing he showed was that 30-year jail sentence then we saw that he was black like okay (laughs) that that made sense but even then it wasn't really problematized right it was just like well he's going to go to prison and we love him regardless it's like well are we going to say something about him going to prison for 30 years for an accident i mean it was accidental right i would say yeah i mean they don't they say it's second degree murder but yeah it's second degree right because he didn't plan to kill her i mean second degree right it 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 implies that you did something that would cause their death even though it was an accident so i yeah like you're saying like i wouldn't really even say second degree murder right because he didn't intend to kill her it was like it was both it was neither premeditated nor did he intend to Mm -hmm. kill her but even that was a problem right so look we're talking about fatherhood and i thought that i I always appreciate films that try to tell that story because, you know, motherhood is always on a pedestal. We love mom. And then dad is really always at the sidelines, just there to chip in and give advice. Right. So (laughs) no one ever really says anything about fatherhood. So I think it's important to tell that story. But it was just like, okay, he rejects fatherhood and he's intimidated by his own father. And so, I mean, I just think the, the... he probably just would have ignored her and denied paternity, but to stalk her and then assault her just because she decides not to get an abortion. It, it seemed, I didn't get how that was in his character mm-hmm. just because he used drugs. I mean, that's suburbia. Everyone's on drugs. They don't go around murdering their pregnant girlfriends or ex-girlfriend. I mean, depending on how we yeah. want to talk about their relationship. Matt, when you watched it, you just didn't, 
you only found out the director was white after well, having watched the film. If I remember you saying, did that made you yeah, question part of it? Well, I think I really enjoyed it at the cinema. I just found it really... I, I, I think it worked a lot better at the cinema than it did watching it from home. And I think what I really like about it, I don't, I don't really like the murder like I don't really think it needs that I don't really like the um the cancer dad story and like the last half hour of the film where it's just trying to wrap everything up and make everyone feel like they've learned things and stuff I feel it gets a bit too a bit too much but I think what I like about it is like the um the fatherhood side um the idea of like pushing yourself towards a certain body image that's like he feel like just the kind of social media I don't I don't usually like films that have like texts and social media in yeah. like I just think it's gimmicky but I, I like the fact that I was like I could see that happening I could see like not the death but I could see the um being pushed by social media for a certain body image I could see the um the masculinity going toxic by um pushing yourself through just because you you have all these like the weight of all these expectations on your shoulder um and I could see like the sister getting bullied because of what her brother did and all that kind of thing as well. Like I, I could see, I thought that kind of rung true, but um, in terms of the race, like, yeah, I agree with you. It could be, it could be any family. And also like the, the problem is kind of problematic with the, with the wealth. Yeah, I did. I did say, does everyone just have these massive mansions in Florida? Their family does. <laughs> but I mean, but I think you could tell that story, right? Like I think that there, I think there's a story there I just don't think he told it because I think for, you know, you do have this small number, very small number, right, of affluent black people who do live that lifestyle, right? Oh, no, it's okay. So you decide you want to show that. And I think it, then you need to tell what goes along with that. Like, I don't know if either of you are familiar. It's a book, not a film, but um, Margot Jefferson's Negro Land. Mm. And she talks about living as, I would say, an upper middle class black family in Chicago and how you the emotional cost for that because if you constantly have to be in a world where you're being watched and you have to represent like so your family's telling you you have to show them what black people really are like you have you can never be yourself because you are going into the world as the credit to your race and that takes a toll and she talks about how you know she doesn't think there's any coincidence that she's unmarried she never had children of her own that you are always your harshest critic because then you take that gaze upon you know you internalize that and then that's how you live your life it's always representing the best of brightest internalizing everything you're highly stressed right you're not really able to function and be authentic because it is always that face of black respectability that you're putting on but it's also a survival mechanism and then she talks about how people get crushed under that through drug use and how especially the men, it takes a different toll on the men. Um, and she's not really able to talk about that. And I think to me, that's the story to tell and to frame his representation, his need to be an athlete, this sort of perfect black male body specimen, what that means to be that black athlete in this wealthy affluent family. And then coming from a father, right, who also um, kind of played that played that role, but didn't have any sort of, um, I guess, you know, cultural capital or education capital to also, you know, bolster him. He had to, you see, see him as a bit of a, a scrapper, kind of a bootstrapper, right? So to me, that is like fed into both his father because you, his father is 
on these drugs as well right and you're not even really sure why he needs him or if he needs to take him so clearly his father's dealing with his own um struggles of black manhood being in that environment and to me that is the story to tell because that that's like the cost the price that you're paying like that's the consequence of blackness in that specific environment and then that's the consequence to black manhood versus and you know just having it more subjective versus like oh i just felt like it relied on these tropes of a hyper masculine violent black man because ultimately that's what he became and it's like well huh like what how how so how so tell me more about that and even the interracialism that wasn't explored the fact that he didn't have a black girlfriend and also what that means to be in that environment and not have a black girlfriend because hmm. what were you saying no I, I agree like I think the second time I watched it I, I I I found myself more interested in the father figure more than more than anyone else and and I think if they kind of made that the center of the film it would have been a lot stronger um and I don't think there was the need for the for the uh, for the death of the the girl in it I just um I, I I kind of agree I think if it was done about fatherhood it would have been a stronger stronger film overall and That's what he wanted to do I mean clearly from what he says he wanted to make a film about that somehow was like a cathartic film about his own relationship with his dad. That's the problem. The other issues kind of feel shoehorned quite um, superficially in the film. I'm not sure why. I mean, cynically, you could say, well, it's because they're trending issues, so gives the film more, att- more attention. But, yeah, there was no need for that. There was no need for the uh, the high drama for murder. I think it would be much more interesting just to explore both father figures. Well, even I think the girl's father was no him, yeah, yeah. Right? Because I mean, I mean, I think I think they could have done it without, you know, without her murder. But certainly, the fact that her father was, you know, supportive of his own daughter having a baby. You know, you have kind of the three fathers, and then you have the young man who doesn't want to be a father. And it's like, I'd prefer the delving deep into those stories because th- th- I think it is all very interesting. And especially too, like, yeah, because there's interesting stories there. I just felt like he did. I don't know if he'd know how to tell it or what. But because also, like, I found it strange only because I grew up with several teen, <laughs> several of my friends being pregnant in high school and having also soon after high school, right? And I just, everyone's parents kind of talked, even the parents who didn't talk before there was a pregnancy. I just can't imagine a scenario and I'm sure it does right but I'm just saying based on my own limited life experience usually once your daughter was pregnant you reached out to the boy's parents right that was kind of your first point of call you didn't just say oh I guess he'll either be here or not no you were going to that family's house and saying uh get your son together because this is what he texts my daughter and it's not happening right like there'd be some discussion yeah because i've even seen that right where the boy decides not to be involved but the parents are because that's when the once the girl's parents find out that's that, that's their first port of call so the fact that her parents never reached mm. out to his parents like what weird yeah, yeah, i did think that as well yeah weird weird yeah yeah because usually they would go over and have some conversation but that's why that whole that say, whole so. thread felt it felt a bit like an excuse to tell the rest of the story if you see what i mean yeah because he had to have a reason to hate well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but i think like the ingredients were there but it just could have pushed the uh it could have it, this, yeah. this focus could have just been a lot more fine-tuned and used yeah. the aesthetics that it kind of had building that was really like engaging because it seemed like they were in love and that's just yeah. like something i've noticed just in film when they try to 
tell that story. They never seem to do it well. So they can do teenage love and they capture that. And they never, though, to me, give an authentic telling of the unplanned pregnancy to teenage parents because I, I don't know what the experience of you two has been, but back to my experience with all these young parents, they were all excited. Everyone else is looking on like, are you aware of the shit show that's about to go down? <laughs> and everyone else is kind of like, no one wants to say anything. So we all show up to the baby shower excited. But we're all thinking, Ugh. but they're usually excited. Honestly, I can't think of one instance where, I mean, later it falls apart, right? And later there's a disagreement. And sometimes the father disappeared. Usually, you know, he didn't, but just wasn't yeah. as involved. Uh, but, I just can I can't think of any circumstance when in which they both weren't excited at least the public facing of it to everyone else is like they're happy they're excited they're together they like to be seen holding hands and showing affection and you know looking forward to the baby and as opposed to this the things that I've seen play out and even in short films where they try to show where the boy is like lashing out, calling her names, like getting all dark all of a sudden. And you're just like, well, that's never, I've just not seen that happen in life. So things like that just don't ring true. And it just feels so stark in contrast to what I've observed. I'm just like, eh. but you could argue that that's because he's a, he's a professional athlete and somewhere it felt like a double blow. Like first his shoulder goes and then he has a baby and it's, he saw it from that perspective as yet another obstacle to him achieving his main life goal, which is to be an athlete like his father wants him to be. And he wants to be too, right? Yeah. So that's why he hid his injury. It's, it's certainly his um, his identity mm. is totally wrapped. You know, that is his identity. Matt, you'd brought up Waves in the context of um, films that you watched at the cinema that you thought w you were wondering how they would translate to the small screen. So when you say you watched it twice, did you watch both times at the cinema? No, I watched it once at the cinema and then I watched it once recently from home. I, I did prefer it at the cinema. <laughs> but yeah, I, it did feel a lot. It felt a lot longer from, from home. But I, I remember in the cinema, I just, I don't know. It was just, I think because I just didn't know anything. I, I've been just rewatching films. Basically, I watched last year because I've been missing the cinema, and I still haven't gone gone back yet. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys gone back to the cinema yet? Not yet. Oh no, no, same. I just really want to experience a nice, spacious cinema with barely anyone and nobody munching their way through a film so I can hear everything. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. So another issue I had with it, and I know it makes me sound like a grumpy old woman, but it's the fact that it was, you just couldn't hear what they were saying. It was, there was so much mumbling going on and the music was really loud. Now I know that's a pattern for a lot of films coming out now and that have come out in the last couple of years, I guess, that they crank up the sound really, really high and then the dialogue just disappears. But it made me lose that emotional connection even more. Now, funnily enough, not only did I lose that, the now is it just me, but the screens, the phone screens were really hard to see and read. So at one point, the camera was showing one of the, uh, one of the phone screens and the text coming up. And I think it's when they, um, it's after they have a fight after she tells him she's pregnant. Uh, oh no, sorry, after she tells him she didn't go through with the abortion. So they have a, and we had the subtitles on and I thought the subtitles were for the texts. And in fact, they were the lyrics to the song playing <laughs> in the background. And it took me about two minutes before I was like, that, that doesn't sound right. What was going on? <laughs> and then I realised I just couldn't see what was written on the phone. So okay, I, I could think see you it. lose that 
as well on the small screen and then it creates even more of a disconnect with the high emotional intense drama going on on the screen see i can't see all the text messages so i actually can't relate to that um and i thought and i'm gonna agree actually um with the comment you made earlier that i i did I usually hate the text messages, but I thought that it worked in this one because I totally would. I mean, it's just funny. They totally would have communicated that way. And it just felt that part rang very true to the story about how they were going back and forth. Um, although I thought the car scene was a little much. I don't think he would have left her there. He wouldn't have left her to walk. Like we all, we all know how that happens. He would have circled the block. I can't tell, tell you, unfortunately, how many of those I witnessed in high school. We always would circle the block and <laughs> come back because you just didn't go that far with it, right? That was always going too far. Um, but you wanted them to think that you would leave them just so they would get in the car this, you know, second time around. But, um, but, but yeah, um, I could read the text messages and I watched it on the small screen too. So I watched it on the flight. Oh yeah, that's true. God, that's even worse. That's a tiny screen. That's yeah. akin to watching it on your tablet or something or on your phone. No, oh no, not the in your first class small. seat on okay. your <laughs> transatlantic flight. Exactly. So it was a big enough. <laughs> I'm tall. I can't fly economy. <laughs> I have to agree with you though. Like it really is a pet peeve of mine how uh, with mumbling with actors and in, in modern films and sound like the sound quality. Just being like you can have like you have great visual and then like the sound is on some of the films is terrible now. On that note, do you, either of you have any conclusive remarks about Waves? Uh, I don't have anything more conclusive on Waves, I don't think, apart from if you can see it at the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> if, they re- if they replay it somewhere, I think you'd enjoy it at the cinema. It's very much an auditory visual experience. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But films, other films, I mean, I, I watched... Um, because you, you mentioned So Long My Son, didn't you? Yeah, I was going to say that one because yeah. I actually had the reverse effect with that one. So I saw that at the cinema, uh, So Long My Son. So it's like a it's a, it's a three-hour uh, Chinese film about a couple going through the, the changes in the last, 30, I think, 30 years of Chinese history and about like the one-child policy. And basically, they have a, tra- have a tragic loss of their son who's... Um, who drowns and uh, there's another married couple whose uh, son is kind of responsible for the drowning because he kind of encourages the child to go into the water when he can't swim and it just kind of goes back between the past and the present and it's um it's a tough watch but it's I think it's really rewarding and really really beautifully made um but at the cinema I found it quite quite hard going and I don't know if it was I sat down being like okay it's gonna be a three-hour film you know I'm going to sit in, I'm not going to like, I'm going to not go to the loo, I'm just going to focus on the film and stay till the end and it's got all these five star reviews and so I think I took all of that in with me but then I watched it because it was on movie, I watched it from home and I watched, I've actually watched it I think two or three times from home now because I just, I I really love it now, I think it's just really, it's really grown on me. I think it's still on movie like in their, in their archive if you can, can see it, it's a really, really powerful film. Yeah. It's very sad. I made I made my watch my mum watch it as well and she does not do well with sad films. <laughs> she was blubbing. It's a good recommendation. It's a good one to end on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Matt, for joining us. Oh no, thank you. That's it from us for this fortnight or this week rather, because I think we're going to be having a another one on very soon. And you can catch us on mydiorama.org.uk and you can tweet us your comments and feedback at mydiorama. And a big thank you to our partners as ever, Emerging Filmmakers Night, Film Fest Report and the Media Fund, 
which is currently doing lots of great stuff supporting independent media. Thanks for listening.